This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. It's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. This Daily Maverick Show is proudly delivered to you by PostNet Courier. Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. All right, had a few false starts. They're finally able to say hello. It's the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Really excited to get started. I just realized it's officially December. Joined by Greg and Fatima as usual. Guys, are you ready? Yeah, thanks for having us as always. The festive season is here, guys. It's time for those awkward catch-ups with your second cousin twice removed. Awkward (laughs) gifts from your grandmother. It's time. Except for me, I'm Australian, so I don't have any cousins, no grandmothers here. You can come hang out with my awkward cousins. You can hang out with my awkward cousins. uh, (laughs) In Nairobi. Dude, we'll make a plan. Dude. We'll make a plan. Anyway, today we'll be talking about climate change. Perhaps the most, not perhaps, actually the single most important issue I think we, we should be talking about. We probably don't cover it enough. Um, remember, you can join us on Twitter at ADMShowZA. You can call in on 0861 So first, we'll be looking specifically at a, at a Southern African perspective, and we've got some experts in studio to, to run us through that. Um, secondly, we'll be looking at a specific case study coming from Nigeria and what is being described as a floating city almost. And it's an interesting perspective on how, on how developing countries can respond to rising water levels. And lastly, we'll be speaking to a movement that prescribes the only way to really save Mother Earth as extincting the human race. So just killing ourselves pretty much. So that's, that's the show we've got lined up. But first, We'll be talking to two out of three authors of a recently released book, sorry, called Climate Change, Briefings from Southern Africa. As Professor Bob Scholes, Professor Mary Scholes, both from the University of Witts. Um, Bob, you are, you know, a professor of systems ecology and sat on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So I'm really interested to hear about your experiences on that. And Mary, a school of plants and animal and environmental sciences with a focus on agriculture and food security. I think I should now stop talking. Bob and Mary Scholes, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks Thank you very much. much. Welcome forward to, to the it. listeners. Okay, perfect. Um, I think my first question is really about the book. It seems to be structured in terms of almost frequently asked questions. Um, so I suppose just to ease the confusion, I'll start with you, Bob. What, why, is that, why is that something that you, you went with? That's quite an interesting structure. I don't think I've seen that before. So I've been involved in a lot of uh, analysis of climate change for purposes of informing policy. So mm. had been very deeply embedded in this whole question of interpreting the, 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 the information. But I realized that even after that, what we'd written was in, unintelligible to ordinary people. And when we went to dinner parties or bumped into friends, they were fascinated about what we did and kept us asking us these questions, and we'd have to give them answers. And we figured that, well, if uh, if our friends had those questions, maybe other people do uh, did as well. And so that's where the book came from. I'm interested in one of the early on in the book. You've got one page on addressing the issue of climate change skeptics. Sort of one page that seems to lay it clear and, and address these guys. And as Kingsley mentioned. We are going into, into the festive season, and with all these discussions that we're having right now, I think climate change is going to be one of the big sort of dinner topics, you know, over the braai and whatever. What would you advise that we should say to that 
cousin or uncle that Kingsley was talking about. Second cousin. Twice removed. <laughs> when, when they say, no, no, Greg, climate change isn't real. It's a conspiracy by the scientists so that they get paid and it's not man-made. What, what, what should we say to that guy? Well, you should go out and buy this marvelous book, which has just come out, which answers all those questions in a great deal of detail. But, you know, flippancy aside, anyone who thinks that uh, you could get uh, hundreds of thousands of scientists around the world to come up with such an elaborate conspiracy (laughs) is obviously never been engaged with scientists. They're very hard to herd in the same direction. The only thing that actually causes them to conform is when there's evidence, okay? And you could not get this degree of scientific uh, consensus with any mechanism. No amount of money you threw at it, no amount of coercion. It's the evidence, guys. You know, it's very, very clear. Now, I'm interested in so that position and, and what you sort of were alluding to earlier is, so you've got a book where people just want to ask the most basic questions, not they're not all basic, and I, I should say I have I've flipped through the book, and I think it does a good job in in breaking down some quite complex scientific issues for someone like me who I think I failed grade nine science. So I think it does a very good job there. But it must frustrate you the level of discussion around climate change that that skeptics still have a platform that. That we, despite everyone now, I think everyone now knows what it is and, and the risks involved, but we still, I feel, are starting from, or in the public consciousness around this issue, we're starting from quite a low level. It must be frustrating. So we structured the book, firstly, in these bite-sized chunks, which we call briefings, which are more or less two pages each and address a commonly asked question. To make it even easier, we pose the question as the title and then we answer it in one sentence afterwards. So if you have a limited attention span, um, <laughs> yeah, just read the first <laughs> few lines. <laughs> if you're fascinated or you disagree or you really want to get mm. into the guts mm. of the thing, we then unpack it in two days, in two pages. I don't think, you know, we've tried hard to be simple but not simplistic because mm-hmm. these are quite complex questions and as Einstein once said everything must be as simple as possible but no simpler otherwise you do violence to the underground and underlying knowledge with respect to 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 skeptics you know this is difficult for scientists because science is founded on skepticism you know that's what scientists are they people who don't accept the conventional wisdom and always want to probe it and unpack it and find out if there's another uh, another explanation mm. so mm. so we're ourselves very skeptical i think the difference is and where i get frustrated is that a skeptic if you present them with solid evidence and good argument should then say yes okay now i'm convinced Mm -hmm. whereas if you engage with the key denialists you present as much evidence as you like and you know all these powerful arguments and they come back next week with exactly the same rubbish mm-hmm. you know in other words they're not interested in logic or evidence they have a position uh, to defend and they're going to defend that and there are of course political and ideological interests involved i'm getting yeah i think mary wants and to jump if in. i can just come in there Please. as well i think the way debates are often structured mm-hmm. they will have one scientist who will give the fact 
factual evidence, as Bob describes, and then they'll have a skeptic. And that is really difficult then for the public to decide which position they're going to take because they only hear two positions. So it would be really nice if the scientist says, behind me stands another 100,000 people. So when you're hearing my side of the story, think of the others in the background. Mm-hmm. However, the skeptic would then say, and behind me stands a shadow. And I think it really difficult to set up a debate where the person can go away really knowing what to believe. I think one one interesting aspect that I read, I think it was on that same page in the book, is that the media now is starting to understand that it doesn't need to necessarily present these, you know, someone, a climate change scientist, if you will, and then a skeptic. It's starting to understand that that isn't what, that isn't what we're talking about when we say balanced journalism. We're talking about that's just giving a loony his views, his his platform, while distracting from basically consensus. But so back to the actual issue at hand. So if we're talking about climate change, and I really like the book's focus on Southern Africa, I think it says that it's the first of its kind to do something like that, which is, I think, quite great. And, and, And it helps a lot for people to have local understandings of this. Can you tell us about some of the consequences of climate change that we might have already seen in Southern Africa? So one of the most important single take-home messages that people can get is that Southern Africa warms up at about one and a half to twice the global warming. So we're having this big debate now about can we keep the world below two degrees Celsius rise relative to pre-industrial. So for Southern Africa, that means somewhere between three and four degrees Celsius rise. And so that's what you have to bear in mind, that we're actually quite exposed. And there's climatological reasons for that. Uh, Australia in the interior is similarly affected because we both lie within this subtropical band of descending air. That's why it's called sunny South Africa. And when the climate uh, warms up, basically that intensifies. And that means we warm up more than the rest of the world. And in fact, in the western parts of Southern Africa, we dry out as well. So globally, a warmer world is actually a slightly wetter world. And we know that from paleo records and all kinds of information. So if, you know, if you're sitting in a place which is already kind of cooler than optimum, and uh, it, it warms up a bit, uh, crops grow better, you mm. get a bit more rainfall, the carbon dioxide helps the crops to grow. You know, what's the problem mm. here? If you're, on the other hand, in a place which is already beyond the optimum for crop growth, too warm for crop growth, and you get drier, um, then you've got a real problem. And that's what the situation that most of Africa sits in, which is why everyone talks about Africa and Southern Africa in particular being uh, particularly vulnerable to climate change. Mm-hmm. And have we seen consequences of climate change already? I think there are a number of issues that we have seen already. For example, um, looking at the fisheries around the Cape Province where the pilchards and the sardines move back and forth from the west coast down to the southern tip of the continent and then possibly even around the edge. So now that we've got these artisanal fishermen who are on the west coast, but the fish have moved off to the south and sometimes even going eastwards. So you can't expect them to go all the way around and find the fish there, then come all the way back. So they're a long way from their homes And likewise, then the seabirds don't find their food and nor do the penguins. So we've already started to see that. So the fish stocks are moving and they are smaller than they were. 
people I'm sure in Johannesburg will also tell you that they've seen birds that they haven't seen in Johannesburg mm. before. Now they're very frequent. You look out of your window in the morning and there's some bird there that shouldn't be there. So there's a lot of very anecdotal evidence that people phone us and say, my lemon tree didn't flower on time this year. But there's also a lot of hardcore evidence showing if the rain started later or if it got hotter in the season than it normally has. Well, sorry. So, you know, there's no question that the climate of Southern Africa has changed. We have absolutely hard evidence of that. I've just had a student looking at daily weather records for Mm. a small town in eastern Mpumalanga, a hundred years of records. Over that century, the nighttime temperatures have gone up 2.4 degrees Celsius. The daytime temperatures have gone up 1 degree Celsius. So the average has gone up 1.5. That's nearly you know, twice what the what mm. the global record over that period show is hundreds of those kind of records. But what Mary's talking about is, you know, don't give me the numbers. Tell me, tell me about the impacts. How does this affect my life? Mm-hmm. And we've seen some of those already. She's given examples out of fisheries and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. There are examples out of water water resources, and out of um, agriculture as well. For instance, if you take the mean yield per district in South Africa of something like maize or wheat and you plot it against the average temperature of that district, you get a regression, a a relationship which is negative. In other words, South Africa is already too hot for for, mm. for 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 yield of, of cereals. And every bit hotter we get, okay. it depresses our cereal yield. And interestingly, of course, there's a positive relationship against rainfall. The more wetter a place gets, the more uh, cereal it yields. But the strength of the positive relationship to, to rainfall mm. is not as strong as the negative relationship to temperature. Mm. Mm-hmm. In other words, the temperature effect, much to my surprise, dominates over the rainfall mm-hmm. effect in southern Africa. It's fascinating. And obviously one of the big questions that everybody's, the media and the public have been talking about lately is water resources. Uh, we've, we've, you know, had droughts yeah. around, around certain parts of, of South Africa. There's, uh, severe, severe restrictions on water. How will climate change play into this, um, in the future? And how does it play into the current drought that we're experiencing? So what we have at the moment Mm. is an extreme drought, and that's because of the very strong El Nino phenomena, which we thought we understood. But over the last few years, we're deciding that we don't really understand it very well. So not even the scientists who study it understand its behavior. So it's kind of like a naughty child who you thought would eat his dinner, but now doesn't like that anymore. Could you tell us more about that? I'm so curious because it's something we go back and forth in the background of this show is about El Nino and what <laughs> For some it reason, means it does. We'll be yeah. discussing tuberculosis or something it's on the show. Like and then someone's like, well, you know what is also interesting? El Nino. <laughs> so please, what's the, what's the confusion? I'm really curious about that. I'll, I'll tell Bob. I see you look at Bob. <laughs> I mean, just in, so, in basic terms, what do we think it was and what is it turning out to so, be? So yeah. briefly, El Nino is a way in which the oceans circulate heat. It's a particular mode. Okay. So the, the oceans are the real engine of the climate system of the world, mm-hmm. and they usually work in a particular way. Okay. Then occasionally they click into another way, which we call El Nino, and this has effects around the whole world. Some places it makes hotter, some places it makes wetter, some places it makes drier. Mm. So. We know that. And it's been around for for thousands of years. We have good records of El Nino affecting Southern Africa for 400 years going back. And we got really blasé about it. We could predict 
these things, you know, like setting your, your, your watch. You know, next year is going to be an El Nino. Plant sorghum, don't plant maize. And that worked fine until the mid-90s. And then the wheels fell off. Okay, suddenly we, we made a big prediction. It's going to be dry next year. Guys, you know, don't plant maize. And it was just fine. And, of course, the farmers were furious oh. because they lost a fortune. Mm. That was because we were building it on a statistical model of past performance. Then suddenly, around about the 1990s, the wheels fell off and, and a different set of patterns emerged. And it's taken us about 20 years to regain our predictor capacity. We mm. don't build it on a statistical relationship anymore. We actually build it on a very sophisticated, fully coupled dynamic model. You know, the thing about El Nino is that the real trigger for it is this big puddle of warm water which develops in the eastern Pacific and then sloshes its way across the Pacific, which if you look at the globe from that side, you'll see it's half the world is the Pacific. And when it starts traveling from Peru going westwards, once it starts, you just know where it's going to go. You know, it's absolutely predictable. Mm -hmm. It's like you playing in the bath with your rubber ducky, you know, and you you set off a wave. You just know nothing's going to stop that (laughs) until it hits the other end of the bath. And so if you have that information and you feed it into a climate model, you can then predict how this will play out atmospherically. And that's the capacity okay. we now have. So last year's suboptimal rainfall and this year's El Nino have been predicted on that basis. What we really don't know going forward is what will be will, – will El Nino-like events be more frequently or less frequent mm. than at present? And that nobody knows. Sorry, long answer to us. <laughs> I just took it on a massive sidetrack. I just thank you. I think we've officially solved the El Nino debate. No, I, I don't think we have. I was thinking I need to get a rubber ducky and oh, go, go in the bath or something. Oh, now it's actually, so now it's even less predictable than I expected. <laughs> I'm even more confused. The other day I was telling Fatima how there's also La Nina. Oh, jeez. No, and she almost no, fell no. off her chair. She was like, like, what? what? There's, two of them. there's more to this thing? <laughs> no, I just realized, Mary, I'm sorry I cut you off. Not at all. So the question was actually, how does climate change play into what we're seeing in terms of water water shortage in the country. Sorry about that. Right. So um, what we probably expect, but rainfall is hard to predict. It. Yeah. It's much more difficult than the temperature effects. So what we're expecting that in the um, Mpumalanga provinces and probably in northern KwaZulu-Natal, we may get a little bit more rainfall, but it may fall more intensely in the period when it does rain. Up here on the high felt, mm. we may be getting a little bit drier, but we will certainly stay as a summer rainfall area. Now we go down to the Cape, which is a winter rainfall area, and the rains in the winter rainfall area may be of shorter duration and probably about the same. So that's the amount of water that comes in. But because the temperatures are hotter when it is coming in, even in the Cape during the winter, it will evaporate more. So actually the usable water that comes down mm. onto the surface of the soil, which we need for, for washing and cooking mm. and cleaning mm. and growing plants, etc., there'll be less of that. So not only will there be less available, but it may also get more polluted. So what we need to be very careful about is the way we recycle and what we put into the water because whatever we put in, we need to be able to take it out mm. so that the little bit that we have, we can use most effectively. 
And I have noticed in the book now, Fatima, you'll be quite happy with this one. There is a question. How do El Nino and La Nina events f- affect South African weather? There we go. So I'll lend you the book after this and <laughs> you can do some homework. Now, seeing the book is structured as questions, I thought we'll just go f- through a few of them. Yeah, and there's a, sure. there's a bunch of interesting ones. So I've even just chosen a few. And I guess you can give me that sentence or a few sentences answer. So how hot might it get in, in South Africa in this century? So we're looking there at a a range between if we don't do anything about Mm, this. In mm. other words, if Paris fails, uh, we would look at uh, something by the end of the century of about 3.5 global, which means somewhere around about 6 degrees Celsius in the interior of southern Africa. That is way too hot for for almost unlivable for large parts of of southern Africa. If, on the other hand, we're successful in Paris and the countries of the world really, you know, put on the brakes pretty heavily, we would probably scrape in somewhere around about a two degrees Celsius rise, maybe a shade over on current commitments, uh, and that would translate into something like a three to four degrees Celsius rise in southern Africa. Still rather uncomfortable and requiring major adaptation, but probably survivable. Okay, second question. No, can I actually, oh. I'd like to jump in here. <laughs> about, not on that. I mean, also a question, frequently asked question. I'm at this the dinner is your table. own frequently asked question. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's a fairly basic one. So it's just about coastal cities and South African coastal cities and whether they should be worried. So your Cape Towns, your, your Durbans, is there a worry that the sea level could, you know, could, well, we could lose land there to the sea level? There is worry. Okay. And of course, it's going to affect both the poorer communities and some of the the really rich communities mm. on some of their beaches. So we are fortunate, though, that we do have a very steep coast, especially along the kind of Titsikama coast in that area there. So the sea would have to get really high before mm. we would need to worry about that. But what we do need to worry about are what we call storm surges. Okay. So in areas like Port Elizabeth and in Cape Town, those frequently seen pictures of waves crashing onto the waterfront, etc., that will certainly increase. So, you know, people will need to take precautions against that sort of thing. And then also if the currents start eating back some of the sand dunes. So once you go up onto the northern part, like going to Sedgefield and then up to Belito and those areas, mm. you might see the removal of the first dune. On the beach, and then that makes the communities behind that very vulnerable. So, you know, we're almost committed to about a one meter mean sea level rise by the end of the century. And you say, a meter? No, I can can jump. I can jump a meter. (laughs) It's not going to catch me. Um, but remember that you, on top of that, get these storm surges. And we're seeing an increase in, in frequency of storms, etc. And so we'll see this, the biggest storm su- uh, surges. But the real issue here is what's the long-term situation? Yeah. And the, the ice bodies of the world in particular are ex- have, an, have a huge inertia in them. So at this stage, we're almost certain that we will have lost the Greenland ice cap. All we can debate is how long. Mm-hmm. You know, and that there is six meters of sea level rise. Now, suddenly, six meters of sea level rise is serious problem. Okay, yeah, for cities like Cape Town or, or, or Durban, and uh, an insurmountable problem for places like London, Venice, uh, you know, Lagos, uh, or, all sorts of places like that. That scenario is a several centuries scenario. Okay, but uh, it'll have to be dealt with sometime. Okay, now we're running out of time. I can't highlight all these questions, 
But one of the one of the ones that I thought made me chuckle is the do do cow farts really cause global warming? Oh, it's a common joke. Do they? Yes, they do indeed. Um, they're responsible for about a um, a few percent of South Africa's uh, total integrated emissions. Worldwide, about twelve percent of the of the effect comes from enteric fermentation, which is the polite way of of of, of saying this. But for some countries in Southern Africa, let's take a place like. Uh, Botswana or Namibia it's a huge fraction of their total mm. emissions because they don't really have industries they've got millions of, of animals wandering around putt-putting mm-hmm. Now to move on to sort of solutions I think the your book I think has a fantastic chapter on what we can what we can do to avoid and adapt to climate change and I was actually really interested to sort of flick through the different options there and I'd just like to know, first of all, what's South Africa doing at the moment? You know, we don't really hear that much with all the sort of political scandals going on and all this sort of stuff. We don't really hear all of what the, the country is actually doing to adapt and sort of improve the situation regarding climate change. I think the country is doing a lot. And I must say I'm very pleased with the quality of the negotiators that we have in Paris. We can be proud of them. But I think on the local scale, in many of the metropolitans, especially Gauteng and Durban, they're doing a great job in actually getting local community involvement in projects that will make them less vulnerable. But on a very personal level, I think if you can afford it, the minimum you should try and do is put a solar geyser into your house and many of the building requirements have now changed so that for all the new low-cost housing that has been built in South Africa, they are all being built with low-cost geysers. And interestingly, the model that they're using is not just using the money for the capital of the installation of the geysers, but they're also using some of the capital to train technical staff in how to fix the geysers so that once they break, there are people there that can come back and fix them. So solar is really what we should be doing. The other thing we should be doing is recycling. It only takes a very small effort to recycle everything in our households if we can, Mm. including your clothes and your shoes. So there are quite some simple things that do make a difference. And if we look at the COP21 conference that has started now in Paris, what would be the best possible outcome from that conference? We're looking for three things to come out of that. Firstly, it has to be a substantive solution. A few percent shaved off the world's emissions is not going to make any difference at all. It's got to be like, you know, 40 percent reduction by the middle of the century. Secondly, it has to be a fair solution because if it's not fair between the developed and the developing world, it's not Mm, going to stick. Which is something President Zuma, I think, in his speech strongly emphasized. emphasized. Yeah. And then the third thing, it, it has to have some form of bindingness, you know, otherwise it'll simply be hot air. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Professor Bob, Mary Scholes, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think we missed the book launch. Will there be any other opportunities to come and engage with you guys and... Well, you know where to find us. We're at the university and we're always open to have a chat about uh, this sort of thing. And for you, there will be a special test on El Nino after the show. <laughs> okay, there we go. But there is a book launch okay. this Thursday evening at the Origin Center at Wits University at 6 for 6.30. And you're welcome and all your listeners. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you to both of you. For all our listeners, please go out and buy the book and please attend the book launch. Okay. We're just going to go into a short break. Remember, this Daily Mavic show is proudly delivered to you by PostNet Courier.
Today, Patty from Paris sent Christmas presents to Paris. Graham from Grahamstown sent gifts to Homozo and Chaperoni. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. This is cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up-to-date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. On cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just after half past one, and you're back with us on the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We've been discussing climate change. So I had some really cool experts in studio with us, walking us through their book, uh, Climate Change in Southern Africa, and this briefings from this region. Um, next, we'll actually be focusing on a on a case study from the other side of the continent, from Nigeria. And as we were doing our research for this show, we were just so fascinated to find out about what's going on in Lagos and this and this place called Makoko. Uh, so basically, long story short, it's been uh, this slum in, in Nigeria's sort of oldest slum, and it's called Makoko, and it has these people who, in a low-lying lagoonish kind of area, who's literally been living on water. So some of the houses are on stilts, and 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 it's really incredible just to see, you know, how it comes together. I think we finally got our guest on. Uh, this is Nemo Basse, a Nigerian environmental activist, architect, author, and poet. Uh, Nemo, can you hear us? Okay, perfect, fantastic. Now, Nemo, uh, we've just been discussing climate change and especially looking at uh, some of the issues being faced by Lagos and especially Makoko. So I was hoping first if you could just give us, you know, the general context. How is Lagos being affected by the rising water levels? Well, Lagos, like other areas of the Nigerian coastline, is a very low-lying city. In fact, the highest place in Lagos is not more than four meters above sea level. And already, the impact of waves from the Atlantic Ocean uh, is, is very visible, especially when there's rain, when there's uh, any major rainfall in Lagos, uh, a large part of the city simply goes underwater. Uh, we are expecting that if there is a net sea level rise of up to one meter above the present level, a whole lot of Lagos will certainly be totally flooded. So it's, it's a very flood-prone location with heavy coastal erosion and infrastructure on the coastline being affected. Well, I mean, I mean, as we discuss climate change and rising water levels, that's really something that we want to, you know, look at the response. So I'd love to do some kind of some kind of contrast between. Um, the eco-African city and, and sort of the slum area of Makoko. So first, I'd love you could tell us about this eco-African city. What is that and why do you think it's problematic? Well, it's called eco-Atlantic. Oh, a- Atlantic city, like, sorry, not Africa. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, eco is another name for Lagos. Okay. Uh, so it's like saying Lagos in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very daring uh, concept. Uh, it's like poking a finger into the eye of climate change and say, what are you going to do? And this, this proposed city is actually, uh, will be a playground for the rich. So if you look at the socioeconomic aspect, uh, the cheapest plot on that city would be about three million US dollars. Mm. Because you have a, the cheapest plot is a, a thousand five, one, 
I hear you, Nemo, and I, I think I've seen you describe it as almost climate apartheid in some sense. In how the, um, you know, the, those living uh, in the in the poorer areas are completely left behind uh, by this sort of developments. I mean, Nemo, I think next is just, you know, is a more macro question. I mean, you're in Paris right now. You're at COP21, and how how is your work as an activist in Nigeria from the developing world? Um, how does that inform sort of the, what you're looking for? Basically, what can us as the developing world? What are we pushing for out of this COP21? And it's a very challenging assignment, but the, the good thing for us in Africa is that if you are truly an environmental justice campaigner, you have to you're working with community, you're working, working with people, uh, and so you are standing with the people, trying to address their situation and helping them raise their voices to be heard, kind of linking the grassroots, the policy levels, and also where necessary protesting the inaction of those in power. So it's a very exciting kind of work. In Nigeria, I do a lot of work with communities in the Niger Delta, which is one of the most polluted places on planet Earth, and, and which is being polluted by the very thing, the fossil fuel, the crude oil, the petroleum things, petroleum resources that are harming the planet in terms of greenhouse gases and climate change. Uh, so we are really on the front line of the struggle. Uh, the good thing is that people around the world, communities around the world, uh, have the same the same kind of uh, situation. They understand what we're talking about because they also face similar situations in different countries around the world. So really, this is one thing that can unite the world. But we're going to unite the world people to people, not necessarily government to government. Because the government are working on very narrow interest. If you listen to what is going on in the climate 
cable stations in Paris right now. Countries are going with intended nationally determined contributions to emissions reduction. They're not going to they're not going to discuss things that can work together mm. to save the planet. They're talking about things uh, that suit their economic situations. I mean, I hear you, Nimo. We'll continue to watch what's going on in Paris from here, and we really thank you for representing Nigeria and the continent there so well. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Okay, perfect. Okay, we'll continue with our case study talking about Nigeria and their response to rising water levels. On the on the line, we have Fabian Holzel, the founder of Fabulous Urban, a design and planning practice for developing and emerging regions. Fabian, can you hear us? I think we'll just have Bongilia, our producer, look into that. But in the meanwhile, I mean, Greg, can you imagine a school that floats, man? No, it's insane. <laughs> it sounds like I was saying on the yeah. way here when you told me about yeah. the story. It sounds like scouts built a giant raft for a school, and it's just, I don't know, it's incredible. The whole the whole situation up there, a floating school um, in Lagos, they're building this peninsula, Like, and you're saying the pictures look incredible. I mean, the, the contrast is, is crazy to think of. So on one hand, you've got these picture, picture, <laughs> I can't explain, but picture, it's almost like Atlantis, this epic, like giant construction. They're saying it's one of the biggest infrastructure projects on the continent and it's literally into the sea. So I like how Nemo described it as poking the eye of climate change to be like, what are you going <laughs> to do? Because literally that of saying yeah. we'll reclaim this land and we're going to make this what they're saying wants to be the financial capital of, of Africa. So it's that kind of project. It's insane. And it's it's literally putting as much concrete as possible to saying the waves will come, the water will rise, it doesn't matter, we're still here. And it's like I, I like something the, out of water world. <laughs> and the contrast of that with people who are saying, Listen, the water's rising, we've been living with the water for decades. So it's fine. We build stuff that floats, our infrastructure floats, our rafts are okay with it. So we it's almost the difference between trying to fight climate change and almost saying And working with it. And come saying it's kinda happening and it's not going to stop and reverse. So mm. what if we just build stuff that floats? I like it. We should all start building a raft. That's my advice for you at home. Just start building a raft. You never know never know when your kids may need to just go to school on a boat. So why not start building it now? I mean I'm trying to think, how would it how would you I don't know how that works. You could build a house that but well, you can build on stilts. I know some parts of Grahamstown and stuff, they have that style when you have a house that's kind of on stilts and mm. then you park your car under it. Have you guys yeah. seen that style? No, in Australia, in the northern parts of Australia that's very common. So you see, maybe that could just be the vibe. Yeah, why not? I don't have a car, so I don't know. I don't want to do under there. I suppose you can or have a house. A <laughs> what a dick, man! I'm just planning for the future. Okay, my future children are really going to appreciate this situation. <laughs> and I'm interested about how this plays in with with COP21. I mean, the the stuff I'm reading seems to be one of two <laughs> spectrums. Where on one hand, people are like, "Greatest chance for humanity. It's gonna be amazing. All presidents, one room." Fighting climate change. Mm. And the other side, people are like, dude, it's just another summit. You know how it goes. They're going to talk and they're going to plan another summit in five years. But no, actually, it, we finally got our connection through. Fabienne, can you hear us? No. No. So. Still failing. Go, Greg. Now I can have my, my word on COP. It could yeah. be, it, it could be a large and important summit if they manage to get a meaningful agreement. And, and like uh, Professor Bob Scholes was saying earlier, if it is a fair um, agreement with, I think, key goals and it's able to be enforced, that is important. For example, like the Kyoto Protocol, for a long time, that was everyone knows that as the as the barometer for our targets on climate change. Absolutely. And after that, there was the Doha Agreement. But if we get another sort of an agreement that that sets up international standards for post twenty twenty, I think that's after the Doha Agreement um, lapses. That could be huge. Okay, we're going to try this one last time. Fabienne, can you hear us? 
Yes, I can hear you. Fantastic. Sorry, we've been trying for a while. As mentioned, this is Fabienne Holzel, the founder of Fabulous Urban, who's an expert in designing and planning in emerging regions. Fabienne, I know we've been waiting for a while. I know the time difference isn't wonderful. I just want to jump right into it. So firstly, right. we want to look at the case study of Makoko and, and how we can look at that as, as a model for how developing world cities can respond to climate change. Could you tell us a bit about that and your work with that? Well, we did the, the Makoko Regeneration Plan with yeah. a huge network of stakeholders, including the community. Actually, it was initiated by the community because the, the slum, it's, it's a very poor area, uh, has been, still is threatened by forced eviction. So that was the starting point. Mm. That's where we started to work with them. Yeah, and they, they, they settle at the lagoon and in the lagoon. So we were very interested to learn from them because we found it super uh, inspiring how they have developed a lifestyle coping with the water. They go by boat, they build on stilts. Um, so this, this was actually something we tried to develop further to learn from them. Okay, that's amazing. So how did you learn from that and what, what are some of the key problems you were trying to solve going into this? Well, the key problem is uh, the inclusive planning, mm. right? You have to take uh, the people along. And unfortunately, right now in Lagos, but also in many other places, uh, the vision, let's say, uh, urban design visions, urban planning visions are not shared enough among stakeholders, right? It's, it's, it's a lot top-down planning. Mm. And so I, I would say this is the biggest obstacle and challenge to work with the people really and that also slows down enormously i mean it took us three years (laughs) to really then start building the first uh, neighborhood hotspot but i think it's it's worth it because then you really take the people along i mean yeah we always talk about grassroots movements and this is i suppose what it actually looks like so you've actually mentioned the makoko hotspot could you tell us what that is and you know i mean you've you're finally done so could you just tell us a bit about what that is and how you how you overcame those challenges through the hotspots well the hotspot is actually it's a community structure it's a social structure and it's a technical structure Mm -hmm. it's a place where people can gather exchange knowledge what we want to do i we still have to, to raise some money for that, but <laughs> we want to, to produce renewable energy, right? Which is one of the, the, the sources, the energy, right? Mm. CO2, uh, for climate change, we want actually see climate change also as an income opportunity for the poor. So what we want to do is to create jobs via through this hotspot. Uh, we want to cook with uh, biogas. We want to, to reduce uh, the extreme uh, fire. I mean, they cook with firewood, right? So the air is really bad also. Uh, so this, this is what we want to do. We want to provide a, a community structure, doctor's room, and so on and so forth. It sounds like a really ambitious project. I mean, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm hearing about it. I'm surprised it only took three years. I'm surprised it didn't take 30 um, and I mean, Fabien, <laughs> I mean, you work, you work around the world. So I'm curious now, even just stepping away from the particular Lagos um, case study, which is incredible. I'm curious about how in your various, you know, architecture planning and design in emerging regions, um, what are things that emerging areas need to keep in mind in how they plan and design areas and cities in the face of climate change? 
Well, I think, as I said in the beginning, it's really about taking uh, uh, the people along. I think that's one of the most important things. You really have to talk with people to work with them and not for them. Mm. That's one thing. And the other thing is, I think, learning from existing practices. There are a lot of, of, of local communities, uh, uh, tribes even, that for ages they live along rivers, they live in lagoons. We can learn from them. And uh, which is also a question of lifestyle, not only of technology, which I think is important. Nowadays, we tend to believe extremely in technology, but it also has a lot to do how we live. And that leads me to the next point. We have to learn to live with the water, to see. It is very challenging also here in Sao Paulo, where I'm um, currently here in Sao Paulo, where water is actually is scarce. So people have not enough water, drinking water, but at the same time, the city is threatened by flooding. It's very absurd, right? Mm. So we have to learn to live with the water and see it as something positive, which is difficult also in a place like Lagos, where water is also a threat, mm. right? Uh, so I think that's what we have to do, learn to live with the water. And that's why Makoko, that will bring me back to Makoko, is such a beautiful case, because this is where people have learned to live with the water, to cope with it, really, and to create a lifestyle out of it, with it. All right, Fabienne, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you for making time for this interview. I know it was a crazy back sure. and forth. I genuinely appreciate <laughs> it. I know you've got a meeting to get to. Yeah. I'll let you get to it. Thanks. Thanks okay, perfect. Thank you. Everyone listening in, please, please make sure to check out her company, Fabulous Urban. They're doing some excellent work and we're really part of designing these hotspots as they describe them. That's a center of social activity, cultural activity, but also now economic. Imagine being able to have a floating place where you can use waste to generate biogas that then goes in and, and powers the community. I think just hearing about that was incredible. And now just floating schools, floating cities, floating infrastructure. And it's not super rich people. I mean, it's, it's just regular people in a, in a slum area that are making all this happen. I think that's I think it's incredible, but I'm also extremely interested in our next guest. Okay. We're just about to get him on. And the general premise for this is, are you ever just sitting and wondering human beings are doing such horrible things to the planet? What if we just did away with ourselves? What if we are the main problem? Hmm. And we have somebody who's, you know, just tackling that problem of saying, listen, Maybe the problem isn't the greenhouse gases and all these issues. Maybe it's human beings. Fatima, do you want to cue it up for us a little bit? You you were telling us about uh, the voluntary uh, human extinction movement. How did you get onto this thing? Sorry, we're actually just going to go right to the source. We'll be talking to Les Unite, the founder of the voluntary human extinction movement. Les, can you hear us? Doesn't sound like you can. Fatima, how did you find out about this? Um... Well, I got it in one of my weekly emails. It was like a funny little insert. And I clicked on it, and I was surprised <laughs> to see that there was such a movement that existed. And and we'll get Les Unite to explain it. Yeah. Les, can you hear us? I can hear you. Fantastic. Oh, Les, we don't want to speak for you. We want to hear it right from you. Les, tell us, what is the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement? Well, it's a very simple idea. We simply uh, think about our procreative choices before uh, creating another human being. Mm. And if we really think about it, we probably won't. If we all stop procreating, stop adding more of us, then eventually we'll go extinct. It's a, a long-range goal. I mean, I hear you. I'm curious. How do people respond to this when you go up to people at, you know, at a, a party or whatever and say, listen, man, how about we all stop having children just to you know, extinct the human race? 
Well, <laughs> people are, are really quite uh, positive about it. Okay. Um, we are... Um, we're actually not in, uh, t- uh, talking them in terms of having children. Mm. That's a very uh, short-sighted, uh, that is how we say it, but it's a shorthand. Mm. But what we're really doing is creating a whole new person with a lifetime of environmental impact. We're, we are adults three times as long as we're children. I mean, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I imagine some, some critics to that would say, but surely we can develop other sustainable solutions and that you're quite extreme. And what do you say to them? Well, yes, we need to do that. Uh, we are so far into overshoot of carrying capacity that even if not one more of us were ever born, mm. we would still have a lot to do to uh, clean up our little messes, tidy things up on our way out. <laughs> when you put it that way, like tidy things up on our way out, it, it sounds hard to argue with. But Les, I'm sure people have proposed to you that why don't we just stop wasting time and get right to it? Why don't we just organize mass suicides? And if we well, if we kill ourselves in large groups, then surely that gets the yeah. job done faster. Well, it's a hard enough sell to get people to stop procreating. <laughs> but, but no, the uh, we've got too much to do. We can't just leave. Uh, what about all our nuclear reactors that need to be uh, shut down? We, we've got uh, just an awful lot of messes to clean up before we go. Well, that's a really good answer. So it's just saying, I hear you, and we're going to get to that. It's on the agenda. We just have to do some tidying up first. And I suppose it's also the problem that you need to be here to keep the movement going, I suppose. Well, no, I don't think I do. And and I'll be passing on in a couple of decades. But uh, this is an idea that people have arrived at individually uh, all over the planet, which is why I don't call myself the founder. I'm the finder. It was here all along. It's just got lost amidst all of the natalist propaganda. Not the founder, the finder. I love that. Les, we're just about to let you go. Final thing for all our listeners tuning in around South Africa and the world. What would you like to say to them? I would like to say think before you procreate. Each new South African uh, person not created saves uh, two and a half hectares of potential wildlife habitat and a lifetime of uh, environmental impact. It's a wonderful thing people can do by not procreating. Les, do, do you think they'll be discussing this at the current climate change conference in Paris? Somehow, I just can't imagine them talking about voluntary human extinction as one of the solutions. But hopefully they'll talk about uh, population uh, and uh, reproductive freedom that's necessary in order for us to uh, improve uh, birth rates. I mean, I hear you. Um, and hopefully they eventually get to, to your movement and invite you as a guest speaker. Thank you. Fantastic. Les, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we have you on again soon. That would be wonderful. Okay, perfect. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. It's a daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. Please, please make sure to download the podcast and share it far and wide. Some more information on climate change in details. If you've ever wondered if, if Cape Town is, is at risk of being submerged and you won't be able to have your little ice cream at Sea Point, you can listen to the first half of the show. Also, we talked about this fascinating Nigerian case study and we'll be tweeting, we'll be tweeting more links to that. Just imagine a floating city with like literally floating infrastructure that rises with the tide. And lastly, of course, Les Unite. If you've ever just considered committing suicide just to get over with it and save the planet, Les is not the man for you. He's a bit of a milder version of that. How do we always seem to end the show on such, such dark tones? Greg, that's all the time we have. Remember, this Daily Mavic show was proudly delivered to you by Postnet.
Dora from Delmas sent documents to Dana in Dallas. Tandiwe sent toys from Tabazimbi to Toronto. Both used PostNet Global Express. They chose from eight different box sizes, packed their items in their boxes, and their parcels were delivered directly to their international destinations. PostNet Global Express delivers two-door anywhere worldwide. It's easy, affordable, and convenient. Plus, you can track your parcel online. There are over 300 PostNet stores nationwide. Locate your nearest store at postnet.co.za. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.